So I wanted to continue this exploration of aging and, and set it in the context of the Buddha's teachings, specifically in terms of the Four Noble Truths, which I think, as most of you know, are really the core teachings of everything that he taught. And in many ways, they encapsulate this whole process of cultivating resilience, which is the theme of the course overall cultivating resilience as a support for this journey that we're on to the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So I'm going to give just a pretty condensed overview of the Four Noble Truths now, and I'll give you more supplementary information on that in Canvas for those of you who might not be so familiar with them. So just very quickly, the First Noble Truth is a very deceptively simple statement, usually translated as, there is dukkha. Dukkha being stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering. It's one of those very nuanced Pali words that encapsulates a lot more than just the English word suffering might convey. So then the second noble truth is also very simple. There is a cause of dukkha or suffering, namely clinging, craving. And then the third noble truth, also very simple, there is an end of suffering. And the fourth noble truth, there is a path that leads to the end of dukkha, namely the noble eightfold path. So that's a snapshot, and these Four Noble Truths might sound very simple, but understanding them and discovering the transformative wisdom that they contain is really a lifetime project. So for now, I just want to highlight that each of these truths is inviting us to look more carefully at our relationship to dukkha, to suffering, stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness. So the first two truths acknowledge that it exists and then it has a cause. And the last two point out that it's possible to be free of dukkha and how to achieve that. And I want to emphasize the overall arc of shifting towards freedom, towards ease and happiness. Because getting to know suffering or dukkha is not just an exercise in masochism, as people sometimes think. It's And in relation to this, there's a training slogan that I found a few years ago that's been very helpful in my own practice. And that slogan is, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. So understood from that perspective, dukkha can be in the impetus for the whole unfolding of this path. Because if we can approach dukkha with wisdom then instead of being an obstacle, it becomes a vehicle for our transformation. And the initial step in that whole process is to understand dukkha. That's the first noble truth. So I'd like to read you the Buddha's actual definition of dukkha based on a translation by Tanasaro Bhikkhu. And Tanasaro translates the word dukkha as stress. Now this practitioner's is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. 
death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are stressful. Association with the unloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So there's a lot in those few lines. Just to unpack them a little bit, the description of dukkha begins with its most basic aspect, the physical reality of being born as a human. Because we're born into a human body, we are subject to aging and to death. None of us are immune to these processes. On one level, this is utterly obvious. We're born, we get old, we're going to die. And we can see this impermanence in the photos that you all were sharing. But even though we know this on an intellectual level, not many of us really fully live from the deepest understanding of that truth of impermanence. In fact, in various areas, we try to live in denial of those facts as much as we can. Certainly on a society-wide level, there's a lot of denial. And I'll come back to that later. For now, I want to move to the next level of dukkha in the Buddha's definition. He moves on from the physical stress of having a body to the mental and the psychological stress of being in the world. The sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair that we're all subject to at times. Often brought on by not getting what we want, as the sutta says. So this aspect of dukkha also includes the relational and the social, the stress of being separated from the people that we love or having to be with the people we loathe. So even if some of us might so far have managed to avoid illness and accident, I'm pretty sure all of us have at some stage experienced the relational dukkha of separation from the loved or association with the unloved. And we can extend that relational dukkha to look at society as a whole and to include how mainstream society tends to relate to these fundamental truths of life. Particularly when it comes to sickness, to aging, to death, there's pretty strong avoidance in most cultures. And we can see this pretty clearly, at least in Western society, the overvaluing of youthfulness and the undervaluing of elders. And again, this varies in different cultures, but in terms of dominant Western society, there's very much the dukkha of ageism. So this definition of dukkha in the First Noble Truth is pretty comprehensive. It includes the physical, the psychological, the relational, the social domains of life. But almost just in case he hasn't covered all the bases, the Buddha then ends the definition with a summary statement. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So I'm going to zoom into that just a little bit. The five clinging aggregates are material form, which includes the body, feeling tone, perceptions, volitional mental formations, and consciousness.
Now, these are five fairly technical terms, and I'm not going to go into them now in detail. We'll be coming back to them over the rest of the course, and I will include these definitions in Canvas on our platform for this week. But just to say that the Buddha identified these as being five aspects of our experience that we tend to commonly cling to or identify with and therefore suffer. And that's why he presents these five clinging aggregates as kind of shorthand for dukkha as a whole. So keeping in mind that the five aggregates in and of themselves are not a problem, it's the clinging to them that's the issue. So what is meant by clinging in this context? It's an umbrella term for any kind of holding on to experience, grasping, craving, or identifying with it, taking it personally, having it define me, who I am. And it also includes any kind of resistance to experience, pushing it away, rejecting it, avoiding it, denying it. So clinging really is any kind of reactivity or struggle with experience, either for or against it. Then the opposite of clinging, which is actually what all of this practice is aiming towards, is release. And release is the letting go, the letting be, the non-entanglement. And this release happens on deeper and deeper levels, ultimately to the release, the peace of Nibbana or awakening, liberation. So some of you have heard me talk about how I sometimes condense these four noble truths in terms of practice into just these two aspects, these two movements, these two fundamental experiences of either clinging or release. And that makes them very simple to practice with. So in your daily life, just as you're going about your day, whenever you recognize any kind of suffering, right there is a sign that you've got caught in some kind of clinging. So if you can remember, you might take a moment just to stop and to tune into the body and to notice, is there any kind of tightening, tension, contraction, stiffening, bracing of any kind physically? That's an aspect of clinging. Or it might be more clear in the heart and the mind in terms of emotions of liking and disliking, wanting, not wanting, desire, anger, judgment, self-judgment and so on. And if there's no mindfulness, these tend to proliferate then into thought storms of worrying and restlessness and planning and fantasizing and daydreaming, rumination, obsession and so on. All of that unskillful mental activity that creates so much suffering for ourselves and for others. So I'd like to go into just a bit more detail now about how this process of clinging and identification happens. And in some ways it's easy, easiest to see this playing out in relationship to unpleasant experiences. So as the Buddha pointed out in the First Noble Truth, because we're born into human bodies some degree of pain is unavoidable. 
But unless we have some mental training, most of us amplify that initial pain by our unskillful reactivity to it, by the fighting it, getting rid of it, resisting it. So in case that's sounding a bit abstract, let's bring it into the theme for today, which is the body and aging. So looking at this through the lens of the first of these five clinging aggregates, material form or rupa, and specifically this flesh and blood body. And the very common tendency to identify with this body as being fundamentally me, mine, who I am. So based on this mistaken assumption, we believe that we should be in complete control of our bodies. And again, I'm talking about mainstream society now, not necessarily any of you here, but as a general rule, people who don't have any kind of mindfulness training tend to spend enormous amounts of time, energy, money on all kinds of futile strategies to make the body do what we want, to make it always look beautiful, to prevent it from aging, to keep it fit, to avoid it getting sick and consciously or unconsciously to deny the truth that it is going to die. And these ways of relating to the body in Buddhist terms are all symptoms of delusion. And the more strongly we're invested in them, the more we suffer. So again, just to acknowledge that different cultures around the world have very different ways of relating to the body. But in the mainstream capitalist societies that I've mostly lived in, we tend to have a very distorted, superficial, literally skin-deep perception of the body. So we objectify our own and each other's bodies. And we value them based almost entirely on visual appearance. And those values are according to particular norms of attractiveness that are created by consumerism and capitalism and group power dynamics. And that superficial perception has painful and tragic consequences for many people because it hardens into racism and sexism and ageism and ableism and all the other kinds of prejudices that are so insidious and actually traumatizing for the many people who don't fit in to the narrow measures of what society values. So again, this is a huge topic. And in this course overall, I'm trying to ease in somewhat gently before we move into the heavenly messengers of racism and social injustice. So for now, I'd like to stay focused on just this first heavenly messenger of the very old person, to help, to have that messenger help reveal to us, teach us about societal ageism and perhaps our own internalized ageism, which can be painful to acknowledge. And I know for myself that um, as I started to try to bring more awareness to aging, on some level what I found is that because age, aging, um, to some extent brings loss of control, brings perhaps perceived weakness and vulnerability. And the elderly are living reminders of that. 
that that's who each one of us will become if we live long enough. There's a sense of shame around that loss of control. And that's perhaps why in mainstream Western society, the elderly are often shunned and marginalized and isolated. And because all of us are interconnected, it's impossible not to be affected by these society-wide biases and prejudices. And as I was preparing for this course, I was remembering that actually many years ago now, I, long before I was involved in Dharma, I was fortunate in a way to have my own age prejudice called out pretty intensely <clears throat> at the time. I was about 18 years old and I was working in a movie theatre in Auckland with a group of other mostly teenage girls. And one afternoon, a very elderly lady came into the theatre and she was dressed in a fur coat and she'd obviously put quite a bit of care into her appearance and she was wearing a tall wig but the wig wasn't quite straight on her head and as she got a bit closer my friends and I could see that she'd done her makeup but her makeup wasn't quite in the right place so her lipstick was a few millimeters away from where her actual lips were and she had these very dark eyebrows, but they also were not quite where you would have expected them to be. And they didn't quite match up with each other. And so my teenage friends and I were looking at this lady. And it's painful to remember now. But in the ar arrogance of our youth, we were nudging each other and laughing at her. And she realized that she was being laughed at. And to her credit, she walked up to us and for some reason she singled out me and she just looked me right in the eye and she said, one day you will be just like me. I was so embarrassed, but I was also really grateful to her for her courage because I never forgot that moment. And later on, when there were similar impulses to mock an older person, I sometimes remembered what that old lady had said to me. And I tried to change my attitude to see beyond, beyond the surface perception and more to connect with the human being inside. And now, of course, I'm, I am getting closer to being like her. And I'm more aware of all the different layers of bias that I've internalized. And so, you know, I started to realize when I turned 40, I remembered thinking to myself, well, these days they say 40 is the new 30. I'd read that on the cover of a woman's magazine somewhere and I found myself, you know, clutching at it. And then when I turned 50, it was like, well, 50 is the new 40. And then I started to realize how ridiculous it was to keep trying to pretend that I'm a decade younger than I actually am. And even if I managed to convince myself, people around me wouldn't necessarily support that. So there are all these different ways that we tend to be in denial of our age. And the, the sort of dissonance between our internal sense of how old we are and our other people's perception at times is quite uh, striking. So as a small example of that that I shared in the last course... Last year I was in New York with a friend 
And I went out to buy some groceries. And as the young checkout person was finishing adding up the amount, she asked me if I'd like the seniors discount. And I was a little bit surprised. And so I asked her, well, how old do you have to be to get that? And she said, 65. And I was even more taken aback because, well, maybe you haven't noticed, but I'm not 65 yet. And so I kind of mumbled, no, thank you, and took my groceries and left. And when I got back to my friends and I was telling them about the experience, they were all laughing. We were laughing together. But afterwards I was like, well, why is it funny? What's humorous about being thought of as being older than your biological age? Why is aging funny? And again, I think it's because on some level it's associated with shame. And so we bury it. We don't even want to realize that it's there, even as it's perhaps feeding this underground aversion or resistance or avoidance of being fully with our own aging or with the aging of others. So there's a lot in all of that, and I'm sure each of you have your own stories and experiences that you can share, and I'd like to take some time to do that now. But first, let's just take 10 minutes to mindfully refresh the body, take space for the heart and mind, so that when we come back, we can move into some small group contemplation. Okay. Thank you for your attention. Let's come back here at 10 past the hour. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.